Welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Martyrs, welcome. Hope you all had a great holiday. Uh, Today is actually our second to last episode of the season. I know, I know, but don't worry, I'll be back. We have a new guest with us today. Her name is Catherine Queering, and she is a licensed mental health counselor. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So you are a counselor and your website is called cqcounseling.com. Yeah. And what do you specialize in or what do you focus on? I specialize in helping people trust themselves and come home to themselves. So that can be after a variety of things. Um, religious trauma, narcissistic abuse, childhood abuse, or emotionally immature parents, a variety of things where people have had to distance themselves from their own knowing and their own bodies. Yeah. Well, that's great work. I'm I'm glad you're on the team. <laughs> yeah. So what's been your focus, particularly when it comes to like religious trauma? Helping ex-evangelicals learn to trust their desires and reconnect to their inner wisdom. Ooh, very cool. Yeah, very exciting. So you and I were talking about just kind of the different foci that therapists can have when it comes to religious trauma. And you mentioned that one of one of the things that you're really passionate about is attachment styles and how religious trauma can impact that. What kind of piqued your interest in that? Um, it was a really helpful framework for helping me understand my own religious trauma that it wasn't just about the messages I received, but it was about the pressure to be so codependently close to God and enmeshed with him Mm. that created so much pressure around those messages. And then like not being allowed to have a self or my own beliefs, my own identity apart from him. Yeah. And so then I kind of expanded that into all the different types of attachment patterns. Okay. So let's talk about that first, just for listeners who aren't familiar with the attachment styles and kind of what that can look like. Can you give me kind of an overview of, of the attachment styles? Absolutely. So there are four basic ones, secure attachment, which means you feel like you can be yourself and you feel like you belong in that relationship. Anxious means that you're worried about the security of that relationship or being rejected. And there's a lot of attention and focus on maintaining the relationship. Avoidant, the security comes in. I have to have some distance. I have to have autonomy and always being focused on that in a relationship to feel safe enough. And then disorganized attachment comes from a place of the person where I had safety was also the place where I had terror or there was a lot of unpredictability there. So it can feel really confusing and kind of like it's back and forth and you never know what to do in the moment in that relationship. Yeah. Oh, well, I have no idea what that would feel like. (laughs) (laughs) So, so tell me like from a religious lens, how does that play into attachment styles? Well, I've seen in the evangelical church or, you know, different denominations that have this evangelical framework of a relationship with God being a primary part of that and being born again and having this personal relationship with God is a hallmark of, I think, a potential gift, right, of that focus. But it has also become such um, a weapon that you have to prove that you are a Christian because you feel close to God. Mm -hmm. That is the way that you show that you're a Christian and that you know for yourself that you are a Christian and that you are right with God, in quotes, and that you're okay. Right. And so it becomes another standard of purity and pietism, right, to feel close to God. Mm. I think in other denominations, especially like the Catholic Church, I've heard people say it can feel more distant, right? And so then they find some maybe healing or balance and having this closer relationship to God. And those of us who've grown up in this more evangelical pressure to be close to God can find a lot of balance and space and having more autonomy. Hmm. Okay. So I know that a lot of our attachment styles is formed in early childhood based on, you know, how we relate to our caregiver. How does a relationship with God play into that? Yeah. So 
a helpful way of thinking about attachment patterns that focuses on attachment figures when we're young. And there's two things that we are supposed to get from our attachment figures. One of them is a safe haven. So that means we get received comfort, like uh, our attachment figures help reduce our stress, help us feel better, help us make sense of the world. And then the second thing is they are supposed to be a secure base. So that's a safe place from which to explore and figure out the world and try on new things and new ways of thinking and new ways of being. And it can be hard for parents, attachment figures of any kind to do both. So, right, so we have like our parents are our initial or first caregivers, right, are our initial first attachment figures. And then you have other layers of how you've been in the church. That might be church leaders, Sunday school teachers, the pastor, whatever accountability groups, what other other messages you're a part of, right? That are mm -hmm. also forming this wider attachment figure kind of container for you. And then, you know, God himself, themselves becomes a part of that mix, especially in the messaging of the evangelical church that a God is supposed to be our primary attachment figure. Right. Um, God is supposed to be the one that provides us a safe haven and the difficulty is that there is no space for God to be a secure base in that framework. Mm. You have to be close and you have to double down on all the beliefs that you're supposed to have in that framework to be okay within the evangelical community. So it, it just turns into so much pressure when you're, you know, a toddler, it might not be as hard but there's a lot of emphasis. I grew up with a lot of emphasis on obedience, right? Instead of understanding that it's about autonomy and respect and like hmm. toddlers being able to learn to have their own sense of their bodies and control, right? That it doesn't have to be an evil thing. You have to get out of your toddler, right? So even those kind of early experiences are really influenced by this. Yes. And then I think we experience that so much as teenagers, right? When it's like the natural progression is that you're supposed to be able to explore your beliefs. You're supposed to be able to figure out who am I? How do I want to show up in the world? Try some things on. And there's no space for that in the evangelical church. It's just believe these certain things. Don't ask any questions about it or you're suspect. You know, you have to make sure you're right with God. You have to make sure you have God's approval. You have to make sure you're not sinning. You have to make sure you're saved. Like there's no space for exploration or choice yeah. to explore. And then if you want come back to whatever degree you want. It's a double down or you're, you're pushed out. Right. And it seems like a recipe for fearing rejection. If there's this threat that like, if you do try to explore, if you do try to like go beyond your, you know, boundaries or whatever, then you might get totally rejected and like excluded. Right. I, I find it really interesting what you said about like certain denominations maybe project a different type of attachment with God and that that could create the different sort of responses. But if if we're talking about the attachment styles, what would a view of God be like that would cause maybe like an anxious attachment style? Well, one like metaphor really helped me in kind of understanding it. Um, it came from the book Embracing the Love of God, where we see God is in a swivel chair. So when we're doing our devotions every day and we feel close to God and we're doing the right things, it feels like God's facing us. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we feel any distance or we are afraid that we did something wrong or we feel shame or anything like that, or someone in our community questions us, then we go, oh my gosh, God's turned away from me. I have to do all these things out of anxiety to get God to turn back towards me. Okay. Or there's this fear, if these things happen, I must be sinning. And God's not happy with me. God is displeased with me. I have to do something to make it right because it's all my fault. Right. That whole axiom of, you know, if if someone moved, guess who it was? It wasn't God. It was you because God always loves you. God's always <laughs> supposedly turned towards you. And you are at risk to yourself at any moment of making him turn away, right? Because he can't be around sin. Right. That that language of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you pair that with, you know, all these behavioral expectations that can sort of create some serious anxiety about, you know, I need to always be on guard and make sure that I'm doing the things to appease and please God 
otherwise I'm, you know, going to get rejected. Right. And I've heard some of your other guests, your podcast, I just love, by the way. Um, Thank you. Talk about some pieces of that, right? Like the inner critics that we form to police ourselves and the scrupulosity, you know, to police ourselves and that there's so many ways that we internalize that, that might show up in different ways than just pure anxiety. Right. Okay. And then on the other side of that coin, the more avoidant attachment, like how do you see that forming? So that's been a little bit harder for me to pinpoint. So I would love if any of your listeners have any thoughts about this. I've been trying to talk to more people about this. What I've gathered so far is that in other denominations that are not evangelical, sometimes that creates more of a focus on more distant relationship with God and maybe some more fear. It's more about fearing God, more about guilt and doing the right things. There's less of an emphasis on needing a personal relationship. Um, So that's not really even in the picture. God is seen as more of a distant influence. Mm. Within the evangelical church, what I've seen so far from people that I've talked to that have a more avoidant style is that they felt kind of neutral with God but that they felt avoidant with the church or with church leaders or people in the community that were creating the shame and the marginalization and that kind of thing, where there was more resistance to like, I don't want to go to church when the parents are making me, Hmm. right? Or like that kind of thing, but they didn't have as much internal messaging around like, God hates me, unless there was, I think maybe more, and I'm wondering if a more disorganized attachment would happen around like, I am fundamentally bad, right? With like sexuality, identity, um, queerness, like things like that are specifically like, I cannot be myself and be good kind of thing. Right. I haven't heard anyone talk about that specifically, but that's, that's a hypothesis. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm already like going into theory mode, but um, (laughs) I wonder (laughs) if maybe like the avoidant reaction could be in response to that lack of autonomy and that lack of privacy, you know, the the lack of ability to exercise your freedom. You know, I think a lot of people with just regular avoidant attachments to people right. respond that way when they have an over-controlling caregiver. Right. And so I could totally see, you know, seeing God as a, an over-controlling caregiver and being like, I don't want to be told what to do. Right. You know? Yep. Yeah. Like yeah. closeness apparently comes with obligation. No, thank you. Right. And closeness means shame or whatever, right? Like anytime I try to get close, I'm not rewarded for it. So why would I want to do that? Exactly. Or I try to pray. Nobody's answering me. Why would I want to do that? Yeah. So let's talk about attachment needs. Like the attachment style is based on the theory that there are certain needs that we need to get met as kids. And if we don't, then that's where the dysfunction comes from. So tell me about that. Okay. So the two basic attachment needs that we need together are both being a separate person. So that's called differentiation. Like I am, or individuation, I am my own person. Mm -hmm. And I can be whoever I truly am and want to be. The other thing we need is connection. And we need both of those in healthy relationships. And we usually end up erring on one or the other to try to get our attachment needs met. So either I lessen who I am, I become smaller, I sidestep myself, I become small so that I can stay connected. So that's more the anxious attachment, or I'm going to be myself which means I need more distance from you because you won't let me be myself. Mm. So which one of those do we prioritize to meet our basic needs? Yeah. So in a religious context, what would that excessive connection seeking potentially look like? So the way I've heard it in evangelical circles is that differentiation or being your own individual is labeled as rebellion or sin. Mm because you're not obeying your God, you're not connected to God, right? Like any sense of yourself is labeled as sinful and rebellious. Like you're not allowed to have your own desires. You're not allowed to have your own opinions. You're not allowed to think and be yourself. If you are, you start being questioned Mm. and people start coming to you and saying like, I think you're sinning, you know, like I think I'm coming out of concern, right? Yeah. But kind of policing you of like, no, you have to be back to God, right? Like 
You were supposed to empty yourself and let God fill you. If there's any sense of yourself in there, you're doing something wrong. Hmm. So it's so deeply painful to have that sense of like, I'm not allowed to exist. You know, I hear this in Christian songs all the time and really help me understand why it was triggering to me. It's just like, I have to be empty and I have to be an awful person. I have to be dependent on God, right? like constantly dependent on God. Like there is no other space for me to be with God. And that message is just repeated over and over and over and over and reinforced in so many ways. So true. I can almost see the avoidance side coming from that exact same experience, but just maybe for someone who's less apt to do the like people pleasing, right. like instead they're like, you know, screw you. You don't get to tell me who I am. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So when you have clients coming in who are, you know, ex-evangelical or they've experienced some other form of like religious trauma, is this something that you would start with sort of like helping them understand what their attachment style is with God? I think I tend to start with more identifying what it feels like in your body to feel like I like something. I don't like something, right? Like, what is it even like to think, what is the people pleasing part of me? Like, what is the part of me that's like, this is what feels good to me. Mm -hmm. Right. And just start even like noticing those kind of things people often come in aware that they have some codependency patterns. So we usually start with the codependency and people pleasing and then kind of work into what that means for them religiously too. Yeah. Most of the people are already out of this system, but it helps make sense of it, right? Of like, oh, that's why this was so deeply painful and confusing. I can imagine that's a lot of work to do, especially if someone's born and raised in a religious system. It's kind of hard to differentiate that from just your childhood. Right. Yeah. And I think it is really influenced by your parents, the way that they're in the evangelical system or whatever religious system, right? Um, And the way they bring that into the home. I think, you know, you can tell it's larger because your parents are influenced by that system too, Mm -hmm. right? So like they're influenced by the fear or the messaging. If you act differently than what the system wants, their attachment patterns are going to be threatened too. Yeah. If they raise a kid that is, quote, rebellious, what does that mean about them and their security? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. So I asked about the anxious and avoidant styles, but I didn't ask about disorganized. Have there been any patterns that you've noticed of disorganized attachment within religion? Not yet from people's experience, but it makes a lot of sense to me that like there's this pattern of you know, these really mixed messages at really early ages of you are unique and valuable and God made you and he made you perfect and you're so wonderful. And right alongside that then comes you are evil and like you can never do any good on your own. How does that make any sense? Mm. Like, so you're kind of torn in these two ways of God sees me both of these ways. Yeah. I like that makes no sense to me. And so (laughs) I'm going to react to one or the other or both. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that sort of internal split happening of I need to work really hard and like outwardly do all of these things that I'm supposed to be doing to prove that I'm in the group. But then maybe inwardly there's that like emotional disconnection I've talked to a lot of folks who were like, yeah, I feel like the last 10 years I was in the church or whatever, I was just totally detached, even though they were still doing all of the like expected behaviors. Right. I wonder if that's kind of like a a way to try at least to reconcile those two things. Right. So tell me a little bit about like your experience with attachment styles, but also just with religion. Yeah. So I grew up in a large Southern Baptist church and it definitely felt like a safe haven overall. My parents are also pretty warm and loving and attentive. So I definitely felt like I had a safe haven. And when it came to like career pursuits or like interests or hobbies, I did feel like I had a secure base. I felt like I could explore a lot of things there, but nothing morally like everything related to religion or morality or spirituality there was no ability to explore 
but I was, I mean, aware of this from such an early age, even internally, I was aware of like sidestepping myself is what I called it. Is that like, I had to like cut off exile, lots of different feelings and experiences and parts of me that were not allowed to exist. Mm. And then I doubled down on all of the people pleasing and the productivity and achievement kind of things to survive there is very, very rigid and like so gung-ho about all of the religious messages. Like I remember at one point there was you know, a verse about don't say anything if it's not for the good of the edification of others or whatever that verse is. And I remember like, I literally would not say anything at church unless it was encouragement. Oh no. I mean, just taking things like so to the extreme that there was not room for personality. There's not room for myself. Like there was room for a smile and being nice, but there wasn't room for embodiment. Hmm. So that's, that's how I felt most of my childhood. There was safety and warmth. If you assimilate and you stay close and I never wanted to find out what happened on the other side of that. Right. <laughs> like I was very aware that there was uh, it was dangerous territory, like emotionally, relationally. Yeah. And that there would have been a lot of tension within my family and my communities um, if I had done anything different. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if you did any like sort of experiments with differentiation early in life, or did you just kind of like toe the line to be on the safe side? I towed the line. All right. Yeah. All in, towed the line. <laughs> what happened? Um I moved to Chicago for college and never went to a Baptist church again because I was very aware that that framework did not fit me very well. Um, but I was still very, um, very, very spiritual, very religious, and um, very connected to God. I visited a bunch of different churches, and I ended up in an Episcopal church, and that was like coming home to me the best way I could say. So growing up in the Southern Baptist church, I had a lot of anxious attachment. Like I, that God in the swivel chair thing was definitely me. And when in the Episcopal church, there was a lot less focus on personal piety and like having to maintain your relationship with God. Um, and so I felt like I had a pretty secure attachment with God there. Like there was a lot more space for myself and being who I was and pursuing like fulfillment and personal transformation and things like that. So that felt pretty good. Hmm. Um, at the time, I didn't even realize that I had codependent attachments until I went to grad school for psychology. And <laughs> I started studying all of this stuff and then had my first experience in therapy. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is why I'm anxious. Yeah. It's because I'm codependent and people pleasing and all of this stuff. And so as I started unwinding all of that and healing, you know, that started shifting things a little bit, but it really wasn't until I met my husband, who is a PCOSA pastor, that I even felt okay enough moving out of conservative Christian thinking and circles because there was so much messaging that that is suspect and that's not okay and that you're leaving God and like all of these messages around that right yeah and I visited his church when we were dating and I was like these people love God too like what I don't understand <laughs> <laughs> why has this been yeah. so suspect all these years like why like it's ridiculous so he was my opening into like wider thought and interpretation. And mm -hmm. I didn't have to justify everything the same way through like theological gymnastics, right? That before, even when I'd moved towards more like open-minded things and I could just feel in my body, right? That wisdom of your body, just like, yes, I've been waiting for this. Yeah. <laughs> but I needed somebody to tell me it in a way that was very much like hermeneutics around scripture, because that was my only authority. At that point, I was still my authority. Right. And so PCOSA Church was really helpful for that. There's no bad question. There's no focus on guilt. There's not the same kind of focus on pietism. There's just, we love God and we want to serve. And so it feels a lot safer to me, but they're also known as the person chosen. Mm. And there's not much emotional connection there. So like it feels more distant attachment. I don't know if I'd say necessarily avoidant, but distant to avoidant to me, but it's given me some safety and some space where then I was able to do a lot of 
inner work and have secure attachment to myself Mm. and get rid of all the really awful, painful religious burdens that I'd been carrying around inside that I'd moved away from that externally, but I still had so many inside. And as I finally cleared all of those out, then I had enough space for safety and for connecting to the divine. And so for me, that's been, it has to be anti-oppressive. Like it has to be in a space that's not this dominion colonization kind of like colonize your whole inner world as well as the outer world comes space right it has to be connected to the earth and it has to be connected to myself and like that is the only space that feels okay because being securely connected to myself is more important than anything else yeah oh so true so so true were there times that you felt distant from god because you were trying to connect with yourself, like, because your priorities kind of changed? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it felt safer that way. And in the sense that I, I have enough sense of like, God wouldn't be angry about that, right? Like God wants my transformation. He wants my healing. So there, there's not any worry. There's not anxiety around it. Yeah. When you first started asking questions, you know, like when you met your husband and you were thinking about theology in just in a different way, was that scary? Yeah. I mean, so my husband likes to joke on our first date that I was so quiet and it was because I found out he was PCOSA and I don't know how I hadn't really investigated this, I guess, before we met on our first date, but I was like, oh no, they think like the LGBTQ stuff is okay. Like, is this okay? I don't know if this is okay. Like, you know, I was just very much in this like really worried state. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to me that like as much personal work and healing and transformation I had done even to that point, like I still had so much messaging around that, right? And so much fear around that. Mm-hmm. But that dissipated pretty quickly. And then I was like, okay, great. No problem. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's definitely there. That's awesome. And I, I love what you said about like, once it dissipates, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what a breath of fresh air to like, not have to constantly be paranoid that I'm going outside the bounds, you know? Oh, it's amazing. It is. Yeah. So as you have kind of worked with clients through this lens, like what are some of the interventions that you'll do either with them or that you've tried personally that have helped sort of start the recovery journey? Yeah, it's a lot of listening to our bodies and our inner messages and inner wisdom. I love the internal family systems framework. Mm. That's like my main way of understanding how we work and intervening. And so there's a lot of how can we move from managing, reacting to befriending. And so you know, helping everyone come to their core selves that have compassion, calm, curiosity, courage, creativity, connection, confidence, clarity. We already have all of those things within us and being able to say like, can we move to just a little curiosity about that? Right. Can we just be present with that without going into distress? Mm -hmm. And then can we be curious and kind of ask that part of us what's going on? Right. Like, is this part of me trying to prevent more pain or disconnection or rejection Is this part of me trying to make me feel better in the moment? Because it's so afraid that I'm going to go back to this part of me that is tender and hurting. And then once those protector parts of us trust us enough and are healed enough, then we can go to the parts that are exiled and are tender and say like, hey, it's okay. You're not alone anymore. Like I get to be your attachment figure now. I get to be your safe person. Like you are safe. Mm. (laughs) You don't have to hold that pain anymore. And that's the kind of main avenue for healing Hmm. and stages that I work through for specifically trusting our desires and reconnecting to inner wisdom from religious trauma. Like I move through identifying what the messages are and then releasing them, reconnecting to yourself and your inner wisdom, reclaiming any of those tender parts of you that were lost along the way. Or like in my case, I had a lot that were like overly identified with the evangelical culture and over spiritualizing and all of that in order to survive. And I get to give those parts a new job. Mm. You don't have to do that anymore. I get to bring you back. Right. So like in order to be okay, I don't have to get rid of you either. You can say like, okay, we can find a different way. 
right? And so I get to reclaim those parts of me too. Yeah. And then I get to reemerge like grounded and whole, right? And that's what I do for my clients too. Yeah. I love internal family systems, especially with religious trauma. Mm -hmm. Can you give sort of like a 30,000 foot like overview of what that is just for listeners who aren't familiar? Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of turns the idea of mono mind or like that we are only one thing, one way of being, one way of seeing on its head. That way of seeing like I can only be one way or see one way is a white supremacy value. And I think a inheritance of dualistic enlightenment thinking. And instead we can see ourselves as a lot of parts. So kind of like the whole world has so many different parts or like one organism has so many different parts that function in different ways. Like we're aware we have lots of different organs inside. We have muscular cell system, right? Like our emotional, spiritual soul life is similar, right? So we have lots of different parts of us that instead of managing or trying to get rid of, we can befriend them. We basically have like a little village inside or a little family inside, however you want to like think about it. And our core self gets to be the leader. So that to me is the jewel of IFS is that we already have this core self is what they call it, like your highest wise self, your inner wisdom that has all of those C's that I mentioned, that compassion, calm, curiosity, courage, creativity, connection, confidence, clarity, and choice. Like all of that already exists inside of you. And we just have to have enough space to find it. Hmm. You always have a resource inside of you that you can never get rid of. You can never lose it. You know, people come into therapy a lot with this fear of like, oh no, I'm going to lose what I learned in here and the transformation I had. I'm like, you can't ever lose it. It can get clouded. It can get overwhelmed, right? But then we take care of those parts of you. So past the core self, there's three other types of parts that they've identified in IFS. One is managers. So prevent any pain from happening, make your life better by prevention, right? So they manage everything, they organize everything, they make sure everything works the way you want. They're the productivity masters. Yeah, like make sure you don't sin, make sure you're following all the rules of the church. Exactly. Yep. Follow the rules, make sure you don't get any pain. Um, you know, like it's a lot of pain prevention, right? And hopefully also success orientation, right? Okay. Then the other part, they call firefighters. I don't love that term because it's only kind of a negative frame of them. The reason they call them firefighters is because in your most extreme state, these parts come in like firefighters to put out the fire and they don't care what kind of harm they do to the house, right? Like firefighters don't care if everything gets covered in water, mm. you know, anything that they have to do to put out the fire, right? The goal is put out the fire. And so there might be a lot of collateral damage, right? That you have to clean up the house afterwards. Firefighter parts work the same way. There are a lot of the things that we consider more reactive. So drinking, drugs, gambling, sexual addiction, eating, like anything like that, that like, I feel bad, make it feel better. This part comes in and says, I'm going to make it feel better. It doesn't matter what the cost is. And then the managers get really upset about that later and say like, you were supposed to consider the cost. I don't like it. I have to clean up after you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of polarization inside and a lot of parts kind of warring inside from these two parts kind of going back and forth a lot. I like to call the firefighters. They are pleasure holders. They are our defenders and they are our distractors. So like, oh, it's starting to get too much. Okay. We need a little, like, we need a little distraction. We need a little pleasure. We need a little whatever. Mm -hmm. instead of being bad, like they hold pleasure for us. They hold somatic pleasure in our bodies in so many ways and being able to incorporate that. We really need those parts and they are villainized, absolutely villainized in the eventual church. Like I don't, <laughs> I mean, rest maybe is the only one I've heard like Sabbath. That, that's okay. Like I'm trying to think like, yeah, but only if you do it the right way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Managers, right? Like evangelical life says, live out of your managers. Yes. That is all you're allowed to live out of. Yes. Like that's it. And then we have these tender parts of us that are really playful and like full of life and so embodied and that like take in all the energy around us. So these parts are like really young generally. Mm -hmm. And they either 
hold a lot of pain and then they get exiled, like, whoop, you can't feel that pain. We're just going to get rid of you, shove you in the closet. Or they come up and that's when we feel completely overwhelmed or in pain or hurting. And that's what people, like when you say you're flooded or overwhelmed and that kind of thing is that that part is up front without being seen and taken care of. Right. But if you can see and take care of that part, then you heal it. It lets go of that pain. You get to be the new attachment figure for it. Okay. Speaking of exiles, you even mentioned like in your life, there were parts of you that you had exiled earlier in, in life in order to sort of function within the system that you were in. Right. What kinds of things do we exile? I mean, so first, all of the pleasure seeking parts, right? Like those are bad, can't trust our desires. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then sexuality, obviously, you know, like any sense of embodiment, any sense of listening to myself and myself saying, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. There's no space for even acknowledging that. There's often not space for sadness anger, yeah, you know, very rigid gender roles. So like if you have any feelings or experiences outside of your, what you're told is okay as a person with a penis or vulva, like that's not okay. Right. And that gets exiled. Yeah. Like any expressions of ourselves that don't fit that assimilated pattern. Yeah. I definitely remember like consciously exiling my questioning part. Cause I was like, I get in trouble every time I ask these questions. So I guess that's just gonna get shoved into the ground and buried, you know, and like, and it wasn't until a lot of years later that I was like, oh, wait, I actually like that part of me. That's actually a really cool part of me that I don't want to get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I wasn't able, to, I was so people pleasing. I want, there was no conflict resolution. There was no assertiveness. There was no, like all of those parts of me got exiled. Yeah. My sexuality got exiled at like, at least at kindergarten. I mean, before kindergarten, like I was already aware of that was gone. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally yeah. exiled. Yeah. Even before teenager purity culture came into it. Yeah. It's scary reconnecting with those exiles when they have been tucked away for so long. The way that it showed up in my system and that I've seen for a lot of other people is that anytime the messages were really malicious or controlling, it's what we call an unattached burden. So it's not actually something that belongs to you. And once you send that out of your system, Hmm. your parts can heal. So for example, like I had this giant metal anvil, basically like is what it felt like in my system. And it was crushing multiple parts of me were like lying underneath it. Mm. And that anvil represented the, you have to be in the world, but not of it. Right. It was so, that was so crushing in my system. And once I said, I don't need that anymore. I don't believe that. That doesn't have to exist for me anymore. Those parts like basically were in the hospital inside. Yeah. There was just a lot of care for them. That didn't feel overwhelming. And that's the way it's been in my healing journey is that most of the things that were related to religious trauma felt like that. Hmm. I did first have to go through healing parts that were codependently related to my mom. And there was a lot of fear of hurting her and hurting others. And those parts did feel really big and they did feel like they needed a lot of tender care. Yeah. And that I had to do that work before I could do the religious trauma work. Yeah. And I've seen that I think kind of across the board for people. You know, for a lot of my clients, like working through acknowledging the exile that is sort of the part of you that experienced hurt and sadness and grief, that can be really painful. Just sort of like accessing that part again after so many years of being detached from it. Right. To me, that's like the most delicate part of the recovery process is just like, being okay with noticing this deep sadness inside and not needing to shove it down or firefight it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. You sent me a attachment to God quiz that you made and I love it. Like just even as I was reading through it the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit about what it is and, and how you made it. So I was just really trying to help people be able to have more awareness of where the pain came from, 
from these attachment styles and identifying for themselves what this might have looked like or felt like or what some of the messaging might have been around it. So I created it kind of like a checklist quiz um, for people and they can get it free on my website that goes through what did it feel like for each one and kind of seeing which attachment style language felt like it fit the most for you growing up. And then you could also think about it like I've thought about at different points in my life, right? Or you could use it related to the church, right? As opposed to God, if that feels like that fits more hmm. or the community. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, I will put a link to this so folks can download and take a look at it. But do you mind reading just like a couple of questions, maybe from each section and telling me kind of like how that symbolizes that attachment? Yeah, absolutely. So one is, I felt like God was there for me when I was stressed and needed comfort. I liked that God understood how I felt and wouldn't judge me for it. I could ask any questions and God was there for me in the process. So those are all descriptors of secure attachment that no matter what I experienced and what I needed, God was there for me. And I didn't feel anxious or upset or worried about it. Hmm. Particularly the very last one on that page really jumped out at me that I liked knowing that God and I could talk honestly and fearlessly with each other. Yeah, And that's like, wow, that would have been so nice to feel that way. Yeah. You know, like it's still hard for me to imagine people who grew up with religion and, and did feel that way, you know? Right. Right. That was definitely one of my parts of healing and getting a secure attachment with God when I was working through codependency stuff was that like, I, I would visualize myself like beating on Jesus's chest and just screaming and crying and being angry and that he was okay. Wow. Right. Like that was really healing for me is that I could have any emotion, any feeling towards him, anything. And like, he was okay. He was that secure attachment figure, right. That was like compassionate and caring and present and not threatened didn't take it personally. Yeah. Right. It was just there for me. Yeah. And that was very, very healing. So the second one, which, which attachment style does this one relate to? The second one is the anxious attachment. Okay. Um, so one of them is I worried God wouldn't listen to me if I wasn't right with him. Just thinking, believing, or feeling something that God didn't like could mean I wasn't righteous or right with him. Mm. I particularly had a really painful experience with this in my own life that when I started breaking away from codependency with my mom she literally told me once well if you're not right with me you can't be right with god oh my goodness <laughs> yeah i was like oh yeah all those things i was worried about they're true yeah also <laughs> like now i know where i learned those things right <laughs> oh man oh, ouch yeah i really like the the one right after that the i yeah felt like I always had to say yes if there was something right. God wanted like wow that is oh so my gosh true. I mean to the point that I remember so much like celebration of somebody being called to ministry mm. and it was always they had to surrender to a call to ministry right like right. nobody wanted to do that everybody was forced and God twisted their arm and then they said yes God I surrender like I mean just the whole ethos around it is that like yes you have to say yes even if you don't want to, right? And that probably what God is going to ask you to do is something that you don't want to do. And then you have to do it anyway. And you have to worship him and be grateful to him and look up to him as this like wonderful, benevolent leader. I mean, like mm -hmm. what a setup for an abusive relationship. <laughs> so true. Like, I mean, that is an exactly abusive relationship. Like this benevolent master that you have to listen to and worship. Well, and I feel like it also creates this weird victim complex in some people where they're like, Yes, I'm always complaining about the things that I don't want to do, but yet I'm always being faithful anyway. Right. And it's this dysfunctional sort of like martyr complex. Right. Exactly. I also like, I always had to choose trusting God over trusting myself. God was always right. And if I didn't choose him, I'd be sinning and he'd leave. Ooh, right. that hits me in the gut. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It just. I feel like makes so much sense why someone would exile that part of themselves that's like in tune with their intuition and with their instincts and right. even is asking, is it okay if I want to be comfortable? Right. Because 
if you grew up, you know, being taught, like I either have to trust God or me, that's pretty binary. Right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Section three, I'm assuming this is the avoidant one. (laughs) Yes. So some of these are like kind of varied. So there was nothing I could do to make God like me in the long run. I felt I would always disappoint him. I could either trust myself or God, but not both. Mm-hmm. Listening to God meant losing my independence or sense of self. I felt that God would never care deeply about me. So there wasn't any point of trying. So maybe some shame there. Right. And mm-hmm. if I got too close to God, I would get hurt again. Yeah. The one that was uh, listening to God meant losing my independence or sense of self. I think, I think there's an even further than that is like having a good quote, good relationship with God means being totally invaded by him. Yes. Literally. Yes. 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 Right. Like, like I don't get to have opinions anymore. I don't get to have boundaries anymore. I don't get to have a feeling about anything that he's telling me is correct. It's just so disempowering. Right. It's like this annihilation of self, right? The, The teachings around empty yourself and let him fill you. And it's, it's terrifying. And it makes sense why some people hear that language and they are like, I need to get out of here. (laughs) Okay. And then there's not really a a disorganized. Yeah. I don't have a disorganized because it's kind of a combination of the other one. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So if somebody takes this quiz and they're like, "Mm, you know, I'm definitely anxious or avoidant, like what do they do next? So next steps are just acknowledge what a painful experience you've been through. If it wasn't, you know, if it's anything but secure, (laughs) reduce any external triggers. So like make a list of things that trigger, uh, especially anxious attachment feelings, like at least pick one that you can start reducing in your life right now. So these are for like the anxious attachment, create inner safety and trust. Mm -hmm. I really love the safest place possible by Debbie Mirza. And I also just started reading the wisdom of your body by Hillary McBride. And that is also incredible. Yes. For trusting yourself and like creating inner safety and connection to yourself and then express gratitude for yourself Mm -hmm. for taking steps to make your personal world a place of acceptance and belonging. If you didn't feel connected to God, acknowledge the actual source of that pain it's from being in a system that didn't support the expression of authentic self. Give yourself permission to let go of any evangelical expectations, guilt, and shame. Form connections with others that do respect your boundaries and authentic self. And also express gratitude to yourself for creating this new space and growth for yourself. Yeah. I love the suggestion of forming connection to people that do respect your boundaries. That is so, so essential for really either insecure attachment style. It's just like, once you finally know what it feels like to be in a relationship that has healthy boundaries, it's so much easier to feel safe. Yeah. Right. Wow. I love this. So, so I know in addition to therapy, you also do some coaching. Is that right? Yes. I've expanded into that so that I can do more focused work on this feeling from evangelicalism and trusting yourself. And I have groups that run at different times. My next one starts in February. There's six week groups to kind of work through those steps that I mentioned of identifying the messages, releasing them, reclaiming yourself, reconnecting to yourself. Awesome. Yeah. That's some great work. I really, really appreciate having other people to refer clients to and just knowing that other people are experiencing these similar things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also just joined a new non-for-profit called the Order of St. Hildegard that's trying to create a space for anti-oppressive spirituality. Hmm. So it's just in its beginning stages, but it's also really gratifying to be in a place that is allowing and creating some of those places to form those connections with others who do respect your authentic self, Mm. wherever you're at and your search for deeper connection with spirituality and with God. Yeah. So when you say anti-oppressive spirituality, like, can you give me some examples of what that would look like? So that means you are allowed to be any identity like not allowed but like celebrated in all of your Mm. identities and ways of being and that we can respect and collaborate together and there is space for mutual connections between us and this wider like collective interdependent spirituality Mm. 
it's been really exciting to me that I can see that kind of like popping up in lots of different places, right? And this is one of those places where we can keep connecting with people in these ways that are not um, top-down, oppressive, dominate and manage, but like, let's be curious and support each other. Yeah. I could even see that being really awesome for neurodivergent people who are used to a religious experience that is very neurotypical and very like, this is how you're supposed to think. This is how you're supposed to feel about what you're thinking, you know, and this is how you're supposed to relate to other people. And it's like, if that doesn't apply to you, then too bad. So sad. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So with all my guests, we're trying to end on a story about church culture that's funny or ironic. Is there anything that you think would be funny? Well, what came up for me was um, my daughter, who's four, almost five. And um, thankfully, even as a pastor's kid, she really feels free at church. And I've like really tried to protect her in that. <laughs> she gets uh-huh. to be her full self. And um, she's not exposed to people judging her. But anyway, so she enjoys it enough and really enjoys being there and her friends that she is learning the days of the week. And she was like, daddy, I just want there to be a church day and a play day. And he's like, okay, so we're going to have church day and then play day, church day, play day. She's like, well, we also need party day and school day. So this should be like all four of those on a rotating basis. Nice. (laughs) Nice. I love that play day and party day are two different days. (laughs) Yes. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, everybody go check out her website, which is cqcounseling.com. And thank you so much for being here, Catherine, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Anna. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own Bye.